Whoever loves God is known by God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. Georgetown University scholar Cal Newport, who I suspect some of you will know, as a part of his work regarding deep focus and digital asceticism, once conducted a survey of 1,600 individuals who participated in a digital fast. This fast involved abstaining from social media, the internet more generally, and restricting the use of one's devices radically for a period of weeks, even months. At the conclusion of that set time period, Newport surveyed the participants. Among his findings, he discovered that those who most successfully completed the fast who actually continued in their moderated digital habits were not those who simply white-knuckled their way through, was not those who simply restricted themselves, acted negatively, eliminating the behaviors they wanted to avoid. Rather, he found that those who succeeded most fully found replacement behaviors and activities, who replaced the behaviors they were seeking to avoid with higher quality pursuits. They filled the time with better things. Today, we are concluding this short sermon series in the season after Epiphany, looking at the middle chapters of 1 Corinthians. In this series, we've been looking at what it means to live in the light of Christ, what it means to live in the light of the gospel. What are the ethical implications? What shape does the gospel give to our lives? And the implications we've considered have been wide-ranging, all-encompassing. We've touched on some complicated, thorny areas. One of the things we've focused on has been how the church, the people of God, are called away from measuring status and social position in the ways that the world so often does, called to a different consideration of our value in Christ, called to be free of status anxiety and posturing, jockeying for social position. But all of that, I'm sure you'll notice, is elimination, restriction. It's about the pattern of life the church is called to avoid. What can be said positively about our life together in the light of Jesus? As we set aside these other ways of being, what higher quality pursuits, what better thing? are we collectively called toward? Our reading today from 1 Corinthians 8, even as it describes this ethical quandary that is quite foreign to us, provides a picture of the life to which we're called together. A radically countercultural picture, positively rendered of the better thing to which we're called in Jesus. This morning, as we set our focus on this passage, I want to group our thoughts around two headings, two things to which we are called. That is, in Christ, we are called to be a people of belonging and a people of building. People of belonging and a people of building. Before we look at the passage through the lens of those two good things, two calls, let me pray for us. Jesus, we invite your Holy Spirit into this time and space we come from full lives, some of us from difficult and uncertain situations, we ask that in this time you would still and quiet our hearts so that we might hear and receive all that you would have for us. 
and that by your spirit we might more fully become your own. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. On the front of your bulletin, you'll find a phrase that does not appear in 1 Corinthians 18 or 1 Corinthians 8, but does appear in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And we focused on this phrase over these last weeks. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. I think, as I said last week, this is the best simple summary of the gospel that we have. And over these weeks, we've emphasized how this statement communicates that you are of great value to God. That Jesus looked upon you with such value that he thought it worthwhile to go to the cross, that you are of great value to the living God is one of the truths I hope you take away from these weeks, from this series. One element we have not emphasized, however, until now, is that of ownership. You are not your own, bought with a price. Anytime you pay a price for something, that's yours. The logic of this repeated statement as it pertains to us, is that through Jesus' redemptive death upon the cross, you and I now belong to God. That is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 7. Whatever your station in life, he says, are you a freed person? Are you a bondservant? Whatever your station, you are now a servant to God. The ownership of your life has been transferred from the powers of this world and the powers of sin, of death, of hell, to that of Jesus, his power. To put an even finer point on it, as some translations put it, you are now slaves of God. That is not the most inviting, the most attractive language, is it? That's not language we might consider as good advertisement for the gospel. We prioritize autonomy, freedom, liberty. I, I got it right last week. New Hampshire state motto, live free or die, right? Like give me freedom. Any good pop culture villain, whether it's Loki in the Marvel Universe or the Empire in Star Wars, will at some point or another talk in foreboding tones about how it is that human beings need ruling, need possessing, and we all know terrible stuff is just around the corner. A few years ago, I heard a film review of the movie The Master. This was about a decade ago or so. And the, the movie critic, as they went through kind of the value and the, the good parts of the movie, the parts they appreciated and all that, they made an interesting aside, an interesting comment, just a throwaway comment at one point. At one moment they mentioned, everyone needs a master. That is, the question is not will I belong to someone or something, but the question is to whom will I belong? As Bob Dylan saying, everybody's got to serve somebody. To live in the light of the gospel is to make that person Jesus Christ, to belong in and to him. Now, as we've pointed out before in this series, the language that Paul uses about belonging is less territorial, less about possession or ownership than it is actually relational. To belong to Jesus is to belong in the household of God, in the, the family of God. In verse 3 of our reading today, Paul prioritizes this idea of being known by God. More important than knowledge, he declares, 
It is the love of God that matters. More than knowing about God, having that knowledge. Really educated city here in Austin, really educated church here. The true value does not lie, Paul says, in what you and I know about God. The true value lies in being known by him. That is relational language, the language of belonging. In our relationships, we speak of knowing someone, a friend, a spouse. We can even speak in specific relationships of possessing one another. But what we mean to say if the relationship is healthy is that we belong to one another, that we are knit together. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to that old song, a cover of that old song, Cowboy Take Me Away by the band Boy Genius. It's lovely, it's warm and full of longing. But you take that phrase, take me away, out of context, it sounds creepy. It sounds like kidnapping or Stockholm Syndrome. It sounds controlling, destructive. In the right context, it's warm and inviting, but out of that context, it's disconcerting. In the same way, I think the language of belonging to Jesus, the language of his ownership of our lives, being a servant of God, comes in the context of his identity as father, as one who loves and cares for us. The language of Jesus as Lord to whom we belong comes in the context of him being the one through whom we have life. So you, can, you and I can welcome this belonging. I remember this was a news item uh, way back when in the 2002 World Cup. Kaká, who's one of this amazing Brazilian soccer players, and they won the World Cup that year, scored a goal, and in his like typically typical soccer player effusive uh, celebration, tore off his jersey, as they often do. And underneath his jersey, people were shocked. He was wearing a shirt that said, I belong to Jesus. And he looked happy. He looked joyful about this idea because it was in context, in the context of the Father's love, in the context of the life we have in Jesus. We see this language of relationship uh, hinted at in verses four through six in our passage this, this morning. In these verses, Paul covers this incredible, dense theological territory. And the language seems to be some kind of early creed, early confession that the church in Corinth would have known. Paul's appealing to their shared knowledge about God being one, about Jesus being Lord, as it relates to this particular question, the question of eating meat offered to other gods, to idols. And what I want to focus and what I want to emphasize this morning is this short little phrase right at the beginning of verse 6. Yet for us. Yet for us, there is but one God, and as it goes on, but one Lord. That's a curious phrase. Paul here is not saying that this is entirely a matter of subjectivity, like tomato, tomato kind of thing. And this is important. This is relevant, especially as we are just in a few moments going to recite the Nicene Creed. And what's important is that the confession, the creeds, the statements in the Christian faith both make these true claims about reality, that Jesus is Lord, that God of Israel is God. But there are also these statements that are self-involving. They're self-implicating. They're binding on us in some kind of way. We are declaring he, 
is our God. He is our Lord. Not just the Lord, the God, but our own. The one to whom we belong. And the idea is, as we proclaim the creed to ourselves, to one another, is that those realities then become defining, determinative for us, for the shape of our lives. Determinative of how it is that we move and act now in light of the gospel. Paul's imagination for belonging to Jesus was no doubt shaped by the experience of his own conversion. Many of you will know this story. On his way to Damascus to continue persecuting the followers of Jesus, Paul is struck down by this radiant vision of the risen Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my followers, but why are you persecuting me? Such is the identification, the unity that Jesus shares with those who put their trust in him, who acknowledge him as Lord, that there is this shared suffering, that what the people of God are suffering, Jesus suffers. That is the kind of intimate, knit-together belonging that we are describing. That is the belonging that is yours in Jesus. You are not alone in the things that you suffer. Even as you may feel that way, you are knit together with Jesus. One of the primary elements that Paul seems to be driving at here is that those who belong to Jesus then belong to one another. That's the language throughout 1 Corinthians. It's where we get the image, the body of Christ. This image we have of belonging to Jesus, the head, and then being connected to one another. One unit with distinct parts, but whole and complete together across all and every dividing line. The situation that Paul is uh, responding to in 1 Corinthians 8 is that division has uh, opened up between, in the church between those who are strong, knowledgeable, and those who are weak around this question about eating meat that, could have been, that would have been offered to the rival gods in the city of Corinth. Archaeologists and those who've studied this sort of thing have, found, have, have suggested that there were just so many temples in Corinth right around the market where people would be buying their food. And that food that was offered to idols that priests couldn't eat themselves would then go to market and it would be affordable and it would be one of the few chances that someone who was poor would be, have to actually be able to afford meat. And Paul's response here to this ethical question is like, is this right? Is this okay for us to do? Some of us are doing it. Some of us are not doing it. His response is to emphasize that there is a unity of love binding upon those who are one in Christ. He says, eating is of no value. Not eating is of no value. What matters is that you are bound together in love. And so you who desire to exercise your freedom in a way that does not account for your belonging to one another in Christ, you should stop doing that. You should forego that for the sake of this knit-together bond in Christ. One of the most powerful elements of an Anglican wedding ceremony, it's not only Anglican, but uh, many of us will have encountered it in an Anglican context, is that moment when the couple kneels before God and the priest then, officiating the wedding, takes one side of their stole and wraps it around the clasped hands of the woman and man. 
is this beautiful, poignant image. The imagery is that of being chained one to another, of being knit together, of belonging inescapably to each other. What that means is that neither party can exercise their liberty, their freedom, their will, without then impacting the other person. You fall, I fall. You rise, I rise. You go, I go. You stay, I stay. Knit together, bound together. Remember the movie Titanic? The boat sinks at the end. That's the spoiler. At the end there, Rose is floating on the piece of wood or furniture, and Jack, Leonardo DiCaprio, looking beautiful, is floating there, freezing in the water. First of all, there was definitely room for both of them on that piece of wood or furniture. In the movie, this is a spoiler, the movie concludes and Jack just kind of floats off. He's just gone. The idea of belonging in marriage, the idea of belonging together in Christ, makes that final scene a metaphorical impossibility, a no-go zone for the members of the church. You cannot just float away. You and I, we in Christ, are knit together. In Jesus Christ, the people of God belong to him and to one another. They're bound up to him and to one another. This language is lost a little bit in our English translation because it would be so repetitive. But in the final verses of our reading, verses 11 through 13, sibling language, sister and brother, is used four times. Paul really driving it home. And the language actually builds so that in the first instance, Paul refers to the brother or sister in verse 11. And then in verse 12, he refers to your sister and brother before finally in verse 13 twice refers to my sister and brother. Building this sense of intimacy, this sense of familial bond among the people of God, belonging among the people of God. So more than just the absence of competition and infighting, the people of God are called to regard one another in this fashion. Mutual members of Christ's body, sisters and brothers in Jesus, ones to whom we are bound, to whom we belong. So we who might regard ourselves as strong are not able to go off on our own way. Such is our connection to, our belonging with those who might be regarded as weak. And those of us who conceive of ourselves as weak, neither can we go off on our own. Rather, we are called to entrust that in Jesus Christ, we have sisters and brothers who are committed to us and committed to our well-being in him. The language that comes to mind is that we are called to be a community of care for one another, not merely coexistence, but of real, lived-in care, service to one another on behalf of one another. A few weeks back, I watched this video online of this guy from England, from the UK somewhere, who's a Christian, and he confessed something that I think is true for a lot of us. He's like, I'm really excited about Jesus, and for a long time I thought I just had to put up with the church. I just had to put up with God's people, but I was really excited about Jesus. And he's like, I would go to church and just kind of slink out and do my thing. 
And then he describes one day he was asked to start making the coffee at this church in England. And he was like, okay, I guess I should do this. I don't have any excuse. And he shares really beautifully, really wonderfully, how serving coffee, he started to be like, these people are remarkable. He started to get to know people and be like, oh my goodness, these people are an amazing group of people. In what other situation would this people group of people be bound together? And then he's like, I started hassling the person who invited me to be like, we need to get better coffee. This is the bride of Christ. These people need good stuff. And he beautifully captures this kind of sense of belonging, of now, oh, I have vision. We are together. Appreciation, love for the community to which he belongs in Jesus. So what does that actually look like? That brings us to the second call upon us. We're called to be a people who belong, and we're called to be a people who build. In the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 8, Paul contrasts the effects of knowledge with that of love. Knowledge, he says, inflates, it puffs up, while love builds. That is, knowledge can create the illusion of structure and heft. It can create the illusion of growth. But love, love alone, he says, fashions something solid, dependable, and enduring. We experience this in our own relationships. The value that we receive from one another in friendship, in marriage, in our families, whatever, is not in the data we can gain from one another, but in the gift of presence and intimacy. In times of difficulty and suffering, acute suffering, we want to be known. We want to be cared for more than we want to be instructed or given knowledge. Now, Paul is not uniformly negative about knowledge. The knowledge of God, he is on about. He wants people to have the intimate knowledge of God. And his comments here seem to be informed by the situation in Corinth where people seem to be yet again finding a way to stack themselves, rank themselves one above the other using what they know as a means of gaining social standing in the church, a demonstration of their growth, their maturity, their spiritual power. I know some stuff. I'm a big deal. And Paul suggests that is the entirely wrong lens through which to view growth and maturity and the building up of the kingdom of God among the people of God. That is the wrong project, he says. The word translated in verse 10 as emboldened in that the weak people might see you as a strong person, a person with knowledge, eating in an idol's temple and be emboldened. That language actually has with it the connotation of construction, of building something. Paul's point is that the the strong in their exercise of their freedom, their knowledge, are potentially building people up in the wrong direction in ways that are going to lead to ruin. They're on about the wrong sort of building. That is an important clarification for us. There are ways of being, ways of acting as someone who belongs to Jesus, who belongs to the body of Christ, that are actually destructive to others in him. There are ways in which we might seek to build each other up and it be the wrong kind of project. There are fundamentally wrong ways of building to such an extent that this is named as a sin against Christ himself. Paul is saying, take this seriously. The weak, Christ died for them. 
they are of great value. And so to lead them in this fashion, to live in such a way that would cause them to build their lives in this destructive direction is actually a sin against Jesus alongside Paul's persecution of the followers of Jesus, a wrong against him. Sobering, serious stuff. So what might it mean to build rightly? What might it mean to build in love? Building language appears throughout 1 Corinthians. Most notable for our purposes is in chapter 3, verse 11, where Paul writes that whatever one builds, Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is the base upon which one can build and should build a life. That Jesus himself is the cornerstone is indicative of how his own life, of how his love, his way of being, condition, govern the entirety of the structure that is built. Whatever is built has to fit with, accord with, mesh with the foundation. Whatever we make of our lives personally and corporately must accord with Jesus, with the foundation we have. He and his life are the criteria by which we judge the end to which we're building. This is among the most fundamental questions for our own lives. Are we becoming more like Jesus? Are we more and more growing to reflect his priorities, his desires, his ends? And the implication of what Paul is writing here in 1 Corinthians 8 is that those are not exclusively individual questions. They're not questions merely about my own spiritual formation, about my own decisions, my own pattern of life, and how that might be forming or malforming me. But he seems to suggest that those questions are related to how it is that we live together. That a consideration I must have is how my own life is contributing or not to the formation of others in Jesus. How it is contributing to those to whom I belong, who belong to him. We're linked in Christ. We're called to be built up together. Many of you will know that our family was gifted, beautiful gift from this community, uh, a sabbatical in the summer of 2022. On that sabbatical, we were privileged to spend two weeks, just over two weeks, with a monastic community called Chemin at Atcom Abbey in France. It was incredible. There was a moment in our time there where there was like a change in their schedule and they, everybody had a little more time and kind of free time, less structure and that sort of thing. And I remember the abbot had gathered everyone together, us included, to kind of like, hey, this is what to expect over the next couple of days. And he was like, hey, don't forget your spiritual rule of life, the practices that we're all called to. And he said this heavy thing. He says, remember, you have only one soul and you are responsible for it. In the midst of the fun and the conversations, the free time, tend to the cultivation of your own soul. That's true. There was a sobering weight to those words that each of us bears the burden of responsibility for ourselves. But what was remarkable, what was most remarkable for me about our time at that community was the ways that it was so clear that people together were more holy than they would have been if they were on their own that they were building one another up in Christ together by love. Not merely coexisting, but caring for one another, contributing to one another's life in Christ. Sharing, living into the belonging they had together. 
What that looks like in our lives obviously takes wisdom. To share intimate parts of our lives with one another is a question of wisdom. There needs to be a high degree of trust to share questions about your finances, questions about your sexuality, your sexual life, questions about the use of your time, questions about your parenting. All of that takes wisdom. I'm not prescribing any one thing. But it does seem to me that in a culture as radically individualistic as our own, it seems likely that what might actually be constructive intervention, constructive sharing, will be received by us as too much. Too much. Proverbs 7, 26 says, wounds from a friend can be trusted. When was the last time you lived in intimacy enough that someone could wound you and it be a gift? In my own life, there was a time in my life where one person came to me and they approached it in this fashion. They said, this part of your life, I just want to ask the question, does it accord, does it have integrity with your desire, stated desire to follow Jesus? Does it cohere? And that sucked. It wounded me, but it was a gift. It was a gift from this person. One of the best examples I can think of with, of what this might look like, I shared uh, in a sermon maybe four or five years ago. And it came to me through from this theologian, American theologian, a guy named Phil Turner, who in the 70s, after there had been uh, what's known as the East Africa Revival in Uganda, traveled there as an educated, knowledgeable theologian. And he writes how he was like, oh, I was going to go and set these crazy Pentecostals. All right, I was going to do some teaching and kind of like smarten them up, you know. And he writes of being immediately humbled, immediately lowered as just a recognition of like, oh, the way these people are living and the power of God that is moving among them, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do with that or I don't know how I have things to learn. And one particular thing he mentions is there was this couple who were living in a rural village where he was staying who had been given a job, a job offer to move to Kampala, the capital city. But that move raised for them some specific questions about, is this a good idea? Is this the right thing for us to do? And this will be very foreign to us, um, but I think you'll get get the meaning of it. And the two questions that they were focused on were the question of insurance, first of all. If they were going to be moving to the city, it was more dangerous, there was more crime, and they were concerned that they would be robbed, their apartment would be robbed, and so they were going to take out insurance. And the question they had was, is that living by faith or is that living by sight? Is that something we should actually do? It seems like maybe faith would require us not to do that. The second question is related to it, is in light of crime, in light of robbery, it was really common for people to have a attack dog, German Shepherd, okay, keeping security around your belongings, around your place. Is that a right thing for us to do? Maybe we should not take this really good job offer. And rather than treating that as an individual question, recognizing that they belonged to the community, this couple, their friends, brought that to their community, brought that to the elders. And the community together spent time praying and talking and discussing, wrestling with these questions until it reached kind of a moment of like, okay, I think we've all shared perspective. We've sought the Lord. And now the elders went off on their own and the rest of the group prayed together. And a few minutes later, I don't know how long, the elders come back and they say, we have reached a decision. And they said, 
As you move to Kampala, you will be moving farther away from the community that knows you and loves you and cares for you. We will be less able to support you and care for your practical material needs should the need arise. So we think you should go ahead and get insurance. That would be a wise and good thing. The second thing they said is the dog, the security dog, there is a chance that that dog will have to attack someone who is an image bearer of God. And we don't think that that is something that you should pursue. And the community together, Turner writes, rejoiced, welcomed this as the voice of the Holy Spirit in their midst. The, specific, the specifics of the situation aside, what is so striking to me, and what was five years ago at least so resonant for some of us as a community, was this picture of that not being an individual decision, of that being a burden that is shared by the community, and that collectively, belonging to one another, belonging to Jesus together, seeking his wisdom, seeking his leading, seeking his voice. Live and let live is an insufficient Christian ethic for those in the church. We are called to belong and build one another up in Jesus. I have a better hope of being made holy because of your presence in my life as a sister or brother. And you have a better chance of being built up as Christ desires from being in community. This is not a solo endeavor. This is not about one individual family. It's not even about one particular local congregation, incitation of the body of Christ. What God is doing is so much greater than that. And we as ones who are in Christ are called to participate and build upon the foundation that Jesus has laid to build something far more glorious than our own individual lives, than the lives of our kids. Last night, uh, she's not here this morning, but last night, Krista, who's a deacon here who regularly leads worship, and I had the privilege of going to Mount Zion Baptist, just a little lower down on the east side, to uh, a celebration night for their criminal justice ministry. This is a remarkable ministry for the incarcerated and the families of those who are incarcerated. And the night was marked by just amazing testimonies of the ways God is working and ways people have been faithfully serving for decades. The part that stood out to me the most, that stirred me the most, was surprising. It was the youth dance team there. There was a team of like six, seven, 14-year-old girls who danced to this worship song. And the sight of seeing these girls with power, with confidence, with abandon, move their bodies to worship the Lord was really stirring. And there was this moment where I think three or four of them, like all of a sudden went behind the stage where you couldn't see them. And I was like, I was sitting in the front row. For some reason, I was like put in a seat of honor. So I was like, oh my gosh, I'm in the front row. But I was like, I bet you they're going to come back and it's going to be really cool. Like when they come back. And it was. As the song crescendoed, these three or four came back. As the song sung about the glory of God's purposes for our lives, they came back and where they had been once wearing just these purple dance dresses, they now came back with these flowing golden robes and just throwing their bodies around at the front of the church in unison in this amazing display. And it was this picture of the glory that God is seeking to build in our lives. They finished and the night continued, but people as they shared their testimonies, as they taught, 
Time and again, I think because these girls were like the youngest people in the room, they were like, you young people. And there was encouragement, there was challenge, there was warning, there was exhortation to these younger girls. And it was a picture of how that vision of flowing golden capes, of glory, to which God is calling each of us, is a communal endeavor, is something that we together build one another up in. A question I would invite you to prayerfully consider is how is my life contributing to others being built up in him? How is my life contributing to the building up of the church as Jesus desires? Because that is, at least in part, what it means to live in light of the gospel, in the light of Jesus. That is what it means to belong to Jesus together, to be built up in him. That is what it means to build in the same fashion that he has, with the same self-giving love. For he who was strong became weak for us. He set aside his rights, his freedoms on our behalf. He extended himself, inconvenienced and made uncomfortable. He did not leave us to our own devices, but drew near to us. He invited our belonging and set our feet upon the rock and laid for us a firm foundation. Let us now do the same in the power of the Spirit. Let us now be a people of belonging and building. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.